Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're talking about felicitating ourselves, making happiness happen. This episode originally aired in June of 2017 and was an interview between my friend Michelle Geelan and myself. Let's join that conversation. The United Nations celebrates the International Day of Happiness, and I am pleased to turn over this show for the first time in seven years to my friend and um, fellow happiness researcher, Michelle Geelan, who is a national CBS News anchor turned positive psychology researcher. She's also the best-selling author of Broadcasting Happiness. Michelle is the founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research and is partnered with Ariana Huffington to study how transformative stories fuel success. She is an executive producer of the Happiness Advantage special on PBS and a featured professor on Oprah's Happiness course. Michelle holds a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and her research and advice has received attention from the New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes, CNN, Fox, and the Harvard Business Review. Welcome, Michelle Geelan, and I'm turning it over to you because today you're the host and I get to sit in the other chair, (laughs) the hot seat. Oh, this is so fun. I love that the tables are turned. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with you because I think what you said earlier about celebrating, that is it. You're, I mean, you're a published author. You have a book out. I mean, that is, that is something to celebrate uh, tremendously. Um, and it's on such a very important topic happiness, because, um, you know, it's central to the work I do, central to the work you do. And it really is something that I think should be top of mind and discussed all the time. 
Um, we see in the research that I do that a positive brain fuels performance. It makes our relationships better. It makes us healthier. It makes us happier. Um, it, uh, it even helps us make more money over the course of our careers. And, you know, we're all heading to that same destination. I'd rather be happy along the way than miserable. Um, so to celebrate your book, we're going to be talking about today. It's called, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. And I couldn't think of a better topic. So um, I wanted to ask you to start off. I mean, what motivated you to write this book? I know this is your space. This is what you talk about all the time. But to actually, you know, work on writing a book, which is a huge accomplishment in and of itself. And then on this topic, what drove you to put pen to paper? Well, I think that it is the collection. You know, I've been writing for many years. And uh, as many people know, uh, it's not a secret that I didn't just wander into my happy place, that I'm a uh, reformed, depressed person. And I believe that it is everything that I've written over the years that has been collected made me realize that there is a story to tell here. And in fact, there is a roadmap that people might benefit from from learning to find out how to create a happier space from them or for themselves rather. And so uh, you talk about your journey, right? That and this idea of not walking into the happy place, really working towards it. What did you learn as you went through that journey? And how does that now allow you to connect more deeply with the people around you who might be struggling with finding their happiness? Well, I think first and foremost, for me, I've realized that happiness is really not that destination, that it's what happens along the way. You know, we find things that we become impassioned by, you know, a goal, a project, perhaps it's just a passion, maybe it's, you know, something that is a hobby. And we find that the byproduct of the journey is a, a happier state of being. So it's much less about that annoying yellow smiley face that we always talk <laughs> about and much more about that life satisfaction, feeling good about where we are in life. And how do you find in your own life when you're in that joyful space, um, what kind of impact does it have on all aspects of your life? What have you noticed? I notice that when I am in the positive contagion mode, <laughs> You know, when I'm, life is going well and I'm in, a, in, a, in an uplifted place, which really is most of the time, um, that it affects others. It affects that the work, um, the work that I do, the quality of what I'm able to produce is higher. My relationships are more sound and connected. And all in all, I find that life just works better. So this is an interesting time nowadays. A lot of people, uh, given some of, you know, political developments are feeling uh, sort of out of control, right? Or uh, very upset or angry or uh, just feeling as if they don't, they're powerless. They can't do anything. Um, how? What kind of advice do you have for people who feel these feelings now? And how can they look at this situation in potentially a different way that allows them in the midst of it when they might not be able to change exactly what they want to change to still feel uh, to still feel happy? I've been calling it post inaugural stress syndrome, you know, or, <laughs> or, or the acronym pissed off. <laughs> and I think it's it's prevalent on on no matter what your political affiliation is or where you're sitting in uh, the political arena. Uh, there are certain things that we can control and certain things that we can't. So for me, it goes back to self-mastery. How can I 
be the president of my own world. You know, I'm, I may not be able to be president of the country, but I certainly can be the CEO of my own life and control what I can. I can learn to um, regulate my emotions. I can learn to work uh, at a more optimal level. And so it's basically, you know, how can I roll up my own sleeves and get involved with making my own life better and, and, and making it better for others as well. And I think this is where we need to get active. You know, that it's not about just what I can take care of in my tiny little corner of the world, but how can I allow my dissatisfaction or my satisfaction to be known by others and be in a like-minded community to make change happen together? I love that. And I, I saw this beautiful post uh, by Liz Gilbert. She, was, she said, you know, I'm not going to post on social media anymore complaints or about the problems unless I have a solution, something that I can do right now or you could potentially do as a result of reading this that might help move the conversation forward or give us back that sense of control. Um, you know, as uh, how has control over the course of your lifetime played a role? How, and are there have there been moments like, for instance, maybe perhaps when you were feeling depressed that you didn't feel as if you had as great levels of, of control as you'd hoped for? Well, I think control is the illusion that uh, fuels us, right? We all like to be in control of our lives. And the reality of it is um, when we do the best that we can and we're willing to relinquish um, a position or expectation of the outcome, we generally feel better about ourselves. So my approach to that loss of a sense of control needed to change. It needed to be much more about showing up doing my best, placing my energy and my focus in the direction where I wanted to find myself, which was ahead of me or or firmly rooted in, in the present moment and not necessarily on life in the rearview mirror. All right. Wonderful. And so um, let's see. So what was one thing about uh, the book writing process and the experiences that you've had since you finished the book that was surprising to you? Well, the birth-like process of writing a book, <laughs> as you know, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, in nine months, you you make a baby. And I think it's more like in a year, you make a book. So the gestation pro process it seems to be a lot longer. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually wrote my book at the same time that I was pregnant and then gave birth to our son. And I swear that <laughs> the the book was harder <laughs> Yeah, the rest of that significantly harder. Um, so, and you work with a lot of clients, um, coaching people. And so, how has that informed the information that you included in this book? What What are some lessons that you've learned as you've seen people implement some of the practices that you recommend in their own lives? This is a great question because. Um, in my practice, I work with people who are challenged by addiction, who are challenged by traumatic events in their lives, including crime, the spoils of war, and other you know situations that are very, very difficult. And when I see them applying, you know, some of these very basic applied positive psychology practices, like you know, gratitude, being of service, um, um, taking a different view, you know, reframing challenges as as opportunities, and seeing them take flight and take hold to a better life. It's very, very inspirational. I think that that makes um, the book also very interesting because we have some stories in the book of people who have undergone tremendous challenges and have come out the other side better for having done so. And I think that, you know, is the hallmark of positive, uh, post-traumatic growth, rather, PTG. 
Yeah, which is something we don't often talk about, this idea that there's not just post-traumatic stress disorder and coming back normal from your traumatic experience, but you can actually grow as a result of that trauma. And in fact, I think that is the upside of what depression can teach us. Those of us who are able to, you know, work to move to the other side, that I have a a knowledge of, of myself that I wouldn't have had under ordinary circumstances had I not gone through that. And I think that's the case for for many people. And in the book, there are also lots of surveys and questionnaires and interactive workbook style exercises that really give pause for the reader to take some personal inventory of where they're at in consciousness. And so tell us, what would be the one biggest thing you'd recommend if someone's just starting out on their path to greater levels of happiness? They see they have that control. What's a habit that you would recommend for them to do? I think a very simple and basic habit is to allow yourself a few minutes of joyful activity every day. And that's a challenge for a lot of people, by the way, because we don't think we deserve it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to take that break and say, this is for me and this is what I want to be doing and it can improve my levels of happiness. And then that also has a positive ripple effect on the people around us. We're going to head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. Let's return to a conversation between my friend Michelle Geelan, who hosted me and myself, which originally aired in June of 2017. So, Lisa, tell us a little bit about this idea of a fine wine, except not spelled W-I-N-E. You know, at the heart of the research that I do, I look at the ripple effect that we can have on the people around us by the things that we choose to talk about, what we broadcast to other people, and, uh, and we can have a positive effect or we can have a negative effect. Tell me about the fine wine and what that does for the people around you. 
Well, the the art of the fine wine is really about giving ourselves the space and opportunity to have a good rant once in a while. I mean, life is not always perfect. It's not always easy. Things go wrong. And the idea that we can authentically and truthfully, you know, state what it is, even though we might not be happy, is just as much a part of happiness as the other. As you know, as the as the happy thoughts and the happy actions and the happy intentions. So honoring, you know, where we're at emotionally is really important in in my view. And so what you're saying is it's okay to talk about your problems, to have that good whining session and uh, and vent to the people around you, but just to do it within the context of of the bigger picture, which is sort of I'm not going to be complaining all the time. I really need to, you know, keep this to an isolated amount of time so that I'm not just known as a complainer. Agreed. And I think it can be um, referred to as gassing off, right? Something goes wrong. You have the ability to vent what's going on, but it's bracketed. You know, maybe you allow yourself five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and the person who is on the other end of it has to be willing to hold space for you. So there has to be some sort of agreement that I'm going to be here for you to listen to this, and then we are going to move on. Yes, I love that. And actually, that dovetails so nicely with a study that we recently did where we found that it's good to connect with other people about a problem that you're experiencing when you're responding to a stressful event, but you don't want to talk too much to the point where you just get stuck there. You want to actually move the conversation forward and start talking about what you can do about it. Um, and so how? what are some signs that allow you to know when you're complaining too much or maybe on the opposite end, when you're bottling it up and then therefore it has a negative effect on your happiness? Great questions. I think the too much arena is when you start to see the person in front of you or at the other end of the, of the phone, maybe sighing breathing heavily, maybe, maybe their body, their, their body movements, their body language is a little bit disrupted. Maybe they start crossing their arms or they keep switching their legs when they cross and you feel that you've lost the other person because part of what makes a wine so fabulous when it's good is because we feel we've been heard, seen, mm -hmm. heard, and understood. Um, and then uh, how does one move from that complaining position to doing something about it, or maybe there's nothing to do about it. And we just need to just stop talking. How do we help ourselves move on to to that new place? Well, and it's in its best light, we recognize it in ourselves. You know, if we have uh, the emotional and social intelligence, we say, okay, enough, time to pull up our panties and move on. You know, that's <laughs> in its best light. But oftentimes we don't, we're, we're, we're mired in it. You know, we're caught in the muck uh, uh, of the wine, of the rant. And so sometimes it's helpful, you know, if you're that friend or that person who's at the other end to say, you know, can I ask you a question? And, you know, if you allow space for the question, the question might be something like, how can I, how can I move past this? Or what's next? What could you do about it? What, what's one little simple thing that you could do to move beyond this moment? In your Tiny work. Steps. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how it is tiny steps uh, in your work when you're, uh, you know, you're working with your clients or even as you, you know, talk to your friends, how does the um, the issue of the victimhood come up and show up? Or are you are you finding that people are more empowered and saying, no, I can take action here and I can do something? I think it's important to recognize that victim consciousness is pervasive in society. I mean, if you look at 
every angle of our modern lives where we see it. We see it in the media. You know, we see it in the daily rants on the news. And the reality of it is um, if we stop that victim consciousness and sometimes we need help doing it, we liberate ourselves to make space for something else, which in general could be so much uh, more enlightening, positive and, and even happy. And but it's hard. I do. I do recognize that it's a challenge because we get stuck. You know, we, we get stuck in the loop. And how, how do you break the loop? So in your book, well, the title of it being, Are We Happy Yet? Um, it denotes a sense of, you know, constantly checking in. And so it, it, was that the intention? And tell me about why the title came about that way. Well, it came about when my kids were younger, you know, the, the proverbial, are we there yet, mom, 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 <laughs> mom, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so it, it struck me that since happiness is something that is the desire of nearly every human being on the planet, and yet we're afforded every day the opportunity, the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, that that question becomes a really important one. You can have all the stuff in the world and still not be happy, or you could be lacking of all the material um, goods that we hang our happy hat on and still find some level of joy in your daily experience. And so what do you think are some of the key ingredients to happiness in, in the long-term happiness, not the joy we experience from a chocolate bar, although I do think that's very important too. Oh, <laughs> um, cho but, yes. Chocolate yeah. bar, the right heels, a good handbag, you know, all of that <laughs> does bring sort of that fleeting uh, hedonic happiness. That's for sure. But for the long, for the long haul, I think that happiness in my experience and certainly the research supports this, I think comes from the little moments that we're able to stitch together, you know, appreciation for the things that we do have, connection and good social um, relationships, being of service, finding a passion that um, we can get behind for the work that we do, you know, having some, some purpose in the world that is good, not only for ourselves, but those around us, you know, uh, spiritual practice. I think there's a, a lot of research that's been done on that, that people who have some connection to something that's, that's outside of themselves report a higher level of well-being than their non-believing counterparts. And that doesn't necessarily mean God. I mean, it can be knitting or gardening or cooking, you know? Yeah. It, and when we connect to that, those deeper levels of meaning, I think that's when we really flourish. And uh, I know a lot of people in their younger years, you know, in their 20s and 30s, they get it from their career. Um, but then maybe as they have a family, they start to see that shift with the relationship or the, you know, the children that they're having. Um, and then as we move into older age, which I'm, I'm not there yet, but for the for people I've talked to, um, it, it can oftentimes shift again. Um, and so what have you seen as far as the, you know, the shift and uh, and whether people are open to that in and of itself? Well, first of all, I think that shift is really important to to talk about. You know, there was the, the U-curve study on happiness and aging and that when we are born, you know, generally, I think because we're in a state of innocence, for the most part, happiness levels are fairly high. And then the older that we get, um, happiness levels begin to dip as we become aware of the challenges that exist on earth and the responsibilities that we are called upon to live up to. And the, the U-curve bottoms out, you know, sort of in the child-rearing uh, years at the bottom when um, responsibilities are high, expectations are high, 
we are working hard to make a living to create stability for the family. And then when the kids leave home and go to college, again, there's an uptick in happiness because people have less responsibility. They're more financially solvent. And I think the kicker is that we care less about what others think. Mm. We're more comfortable in our own skin and occupying our lives. Yes, they sort of, uh, I don't give a darn anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's putting it very kindly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, don't, we don't need beeping out for that. <laughs> no, no, not on, not on this show. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, as, as people get to that point, they see, hey, I'm still here. We are fine. We've been through so many challenges. We've overcome them. And there's that it, the, less can touch you at that point if you have the right mindset, because there are some people that get to that point and unfortunately are not in that space. And so what do you recommend as far as how people look back and process challenges that they've been through or experiences they've had over their the course of their year, their, the years? And, you know, what is the past really to us? Is it, it does it inform our, our present and our future or is it something else? Well, I think the past is part of the, the thread with which we weave our lives. You know, that it is imp an important component because it creates texture. But I don't think that the past need predict the future or even the present moment. Just because you had X, Y, or Z happen yesterday doesn't mean that you can't make other choices today. And I think therein lies the challenge with positive psychology because people do think of it as this happyology. It's really something much deeper. And it really is about, about choice and education and decision-making every day. And so as people make those decisions and those choices, what would you recommend as, you know, one more thing that someone can do that can really help shift their mindset to see life in a more positive and optimistic way that will then in turn hopefully help fuel their happiness as well? Oh my gosh, there are so many things that come to mind when you ask that question. I think that one simple thing that we could do right now, everybody gets to choose every day is how you're going to go out in the world. What do you go? What do you want from life today? But more importantly, what are you willing to give to life? And and that's that service part of it, you know. Because if everybody's going out there, putting their best foot forward, trying to make a difference and a contribution for themselves and the people around them and their little little nucleus and community, pretty soon you have a changed world. And I find that pretty delightful. Yeah, you serve others, and it only tends to fuel your happiness at the same time. I love it. Wonderful. So the book is called Are We Happy Yet? And it's the eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. We've gotten to a couple of them, but I want to know the rest. Uh, um, ah, you have to read the book. <laughs> we, have, we have to read the book, um, which I have gotten the pleasure of doing, and it's fabulous. So, um, And, uh, you know, I'm just the guest host here, so I get to toss it back to Lisa to take us out. Let's take that quick pause. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, 
we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to HHTR's Flashback Favorite. Today we're focusing on felicitating ourselves, making happiness happen. My next guest on this Flashback Favorite is Rick Hansen. This episode originally aired in June of 2014. Let's have a listen. Dr. Rick Hansen is a neuropsychologist, and he is an author. He's written many books, but his latest is Hardwiring Happiness, the new brain science of contentment, calm, and confidence. He has written other books called The Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Mother Nurture, A Mother's Guide to Health in Body, Mind, and Intimate Relationships. And he's also known um, as a self-directed neuroplasticity expert or authority. His work's been featured on the BBC, NPR, Fox Business, Consumer Reports Health, U.S. News and World Report, as well as O Magazine. He's got a weekly newsletter entitled Just One Thing. It's an e-newsletter. And he's got more than 100,000 subscribers. He appears on the Huffington Post, Psychology Today, as well as contributes to other major websites. And um, he really is the go-to guy of late on what's going on upstairs. Good morning, Dr. Hansen. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, a pleasure. I, we, I, you're coming back. I mean, the, you've, been, you've been here before and you've returned. Maybe you just don't remember. <laughs> oh, well, both are true. I mean, I, I recall being here before, but it's also a pleasure to be here right now. Is it, it, is a, it is actually a real pleasure to have you here right now. Let's talk about the relationship between humor and laughter and, and brain function. That's a big one. Uh, could you narrow it down a little bit or give me maybe an example of what you're thinking about? I can. You're making me I'm laugh specific- already, so my, my brain must be working. Excellent, excellent. Well, specifically, our, our prior guest has written a, a book called The Humor Code, A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. And he was on a quest to identify and celebrate um, the differences in our cultures, what we, what we find funny, why we fi- find it funny, and what happens to us in that state of laughter. And, and for me, as I interpret it, what, what is so beautiful about laughter is it brings us fully present. That when we yeah. are in laughter, we are, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our emotions are engaged. And um, the past doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter. Even the, the present problems that we have don't matter. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, from a more clinical perspective, what's going on upstairs? Right. Well, it is interesting that laughter uh, and humor in general is a topic that's been studied a lot recently because it seems so deeply human. I mean, it is true 
that um, you know chimpanzees or bonobos, our nearest relatives in the animal kingdom, will play with each other, and they, it looks like they're laughing. Right? They'll have facial expressions that look like ours in a comedy club or when our kid does something incredibly cute. Um, there actually are now studies on young rats, little baby rats, little rat teenagers who tickle each other. And they make these high-pitched sounds that have the same, you know, they have the rat version, but basically the same acoustic profile of humans who are laughing as well. So it seems as if, the point being, that there's something about humor and related uh, experiences like gaiety or behaviors like laughter. Uh, There's something deep uh, about that that's really woven into our fabric as animals. And if that um, function has been preserved over evolutionary time, it's got to serve some purpose. It's got to be important. So in your brain and body, you know, you kind of make it real here. If you think about it, somebody tells you a joke or maybe you're just laughing in pleasure. I actually had somebody uh, tell me recently that uh, they uh, had been looking outside and they just simply saw a bunch of birds flying by, and it just so startled them and it was so beautiful that they laughed in delight. They laughed in pleasure. Well, when that happens, you're releasing all kinds of good neurochemicals in your brain that don't just feel good. They're good for you. They're calming and soothing neurochemicals like the natural opioids, um, like endorphin, as well as oxytocin, a neurotransmitter neurochemical that men have as well as women, although we have less on average, oh well, but anyway, um, oxytocin that brings us closer together. You know, shared laughter, of course, is a major way that people bind themselves together. So, you know, I think shared humor is deeply important and looking for opportunities as an individual, you know, in your stressed out day, look for stuff that brings a smile to your face. You know, life's often hard. We're often really busy. If we don't take care of ourselves from the inside out, we end up running on empty. And true that, as they say, in your book, Hardwiring Happiness, the New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and confidence, you talk about the different areas of our brains. And for those of us who may be lay people and not sure. know about the uh, what's under the human hood up there, talk about briefly the different parts of the brain and their functions. Well, that's a great way to put it, the human hood. Well, a simple way to think about it is that the brain is like a house. And like a house, it was built from the bottom up, so it has essentially three stories. Um, the first story of the house is the brain stem which is associated with the very first stage of uh, brain evolution, including the reptile stage. So if you kind of maybe, if you like, uh, listening here, um, kind of tap uh, the back of your head uh, just where your neck meets your skull, roughly in that area. That's the, in that area, you're starting to put your hand on top of major parts of the, of the brain stem. And this part of the brain uh, accomplishes really important functions. You know, it wakes us up in the morning. Uh, It also has little nodes inside it that produce important neurotransmitters like serotonin. Uh, That's the target of uh, antidepressants, you know, in terms of the ways in which serotonin balances us. Um, In these more ancient parts of the brain are the basic neural machinery or architecture of fundamental emotions like fear, which was probably the very first emotion to evolve since, you know, in the wild, rule one is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. So that's the brain stem. Uh, and then sitting on top of it, kind of like a cap uh, on top of the stalk, if you will, the second floor of the house of the brain, is what's called the subcortex. Sometimes people call it the limbic system, which is a little fuzzier term, so I'll stick with cortex, subcortex. Um, the subcortex contains 
regions that you hear about these days or read about, like the amygdala, which is the alarm bell of the brain, or the hippocampus, a part of the brain next to the amygdala that uh, is shaped actually like a little seahorse. So that's where it gets its funny name, hippocampus. And the hippocampus is very involved in making memories as well as putting things in context and calming down that alarm bell of the brain. Also, the brain, the subcortex includes the hypothalamus, which is continually tracking the state of your body and telling you whether you need more water or more salt or you need to take a deeper breath. Then there are, there's the thalamus, which is this giant sensory switchboard. All these inputs come into the thalamus and then shoot out again to do their job in terms of telling you about what's happening around you. And then on top of that, we have the most recent part of the brain, the third floor of the house, uh, which really, really uh, has developed a lot in the last couple million years. The brain has roughly tripled in volume in the last three or so million years, even going back to the time when our uh, first ancestors began to manufacture stone tools about two and a half million years ago. So this cortex uh, helps us uh, do what we're doing right now, use language, um, conceptualize, plan, imagine a future, reflect about a past, as well as uh, perform many, many important uh, functions in terms of our relationships, like uh, having empathy for other people, being able to, you know, imagine our way into their own thinking and motivations, uh, and work together with them. You know, the way I kind of put it myself is, if we, it's as if each one of us has like a zoo inside, but that's how I feel. And to kind of simplify it, it's as if we have an inner lizard associated with the brainstem, an inner mouse associated with the subcortex, which really emerged with the first mammals about 200 million years ago. And last, each one of us has a little monkey inside that's associated with the um, cortex. And just to wrap up here, uh, those three layers of the brain, you know, do lots and lots of functions. The whole brain works together today. But loosely, those three floors of the house of the brain are each associated with a particular core need that every animal has for safety, that's the brain stem, the reptile stage, for satisfaction, for getting rewards, for, you know, achieving goals. Uh, that's associated with the subcortical early mammalian stage of evolution, and then last, connecting with others, which is associated with the cortex, you know, the primate human stage of evolution. So to kind of bottom line it, you know, what we need to do on a daily basis is to pet the lizard, calm and soothe that lizard inside us all to help it feel safer, less anxious. Also, we need to feed the mouse. We need to give it some cheese so it has fun and has pleasure. It feels gratitude. It has enjoyment. It feels successful in accomplishing its goals. And, of course, we need to hug the monkey. We need to meet our social needs. We need to um, open to experiences of compassion and kindness for other people and to feel cared about and appreciated ourselves. And that, my friends, is the speed tour. <laughs> of the human right, that's the that elevator tour from the, first, from the basement up to the top floor. That is incredible. And, and you know, perfectly timed because we do have to go to a break. And when we come back, I would love to jump into neuroplasticity because many of us um, have thought that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. However, the science. Uh, is now proving otherwise. And in fact, we can rewire, hardwire, mold, shape, 
rework parts of our brain. And this has really been your passion to study and write about this. So when we come back, we're going to explore more with Dr. Rick Hansen, who is the author of Hardwiring Happiness, the new brain science of contentment, calm, and confidence. To learn more about Rick and his work, you can go to rickhanson.net, and that's H-A-N-S-O-N. On Twitter, he is at Dr. R. Hansen, and on Facebook, he is at Rick Hansen, Ph.D. And I think, actually, we do have about a spare minute here, so why don't we just uh, briefly titillate our listeners with the concept of neuroplasticity, the, the, the quick uh, nano definition. Oh, sure. Well, the, the bottom line is that you can really change your brain from the inside out for the better, gradually but realistically and factually over time. The brain is the organ in the body that's designed to learn. It's designed to be changed by our experiences. And that means that uh, what you think about and what you feel and how you regulate your own attention and how you sustain key experiences, how you stay with experiences that are good for you, really helps you grow muscles, in effect, inside your brain over time. We're going to head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Let's rejoin the conversation with Rick Hansen that originally aired in June of 2014. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking with Dr. Rick Hansen, who is the author of Hardwiring Happiness, the new brain science of contentment, calm, and confidence. And if you are just tuning in, I urge you to download this podcast because we it, we are talking about amazing things today. We're talking about humor, happiness, the relationship it has to our brain chemistry. And if you like what you hear, share it. Share it. Help us grow our community. All right. We are talking about the brain, as we know. And um, Dr. Hansen shared before the break that the brain is set up with a negativity Bias. In other words, we're hardwired to uh, 
trend towards the negative. But the good news is we can change that. That's definitely the good news. Um, it helps to understand a little reason for it. So if you think about it, uh, you know, the brain has been evolving, the nervous system's been evolving altogether for 600 million years. And during that long road, our ancestors had to solve two problems. They had to figure out how to get carrots, like food, mating opportunities, and so forth. Not a term I use with my wife, trust me. But anyway, um, and then also they needed to avoid sticks, quote-unquote, like predators, hazards, and aggression, a lot of aggression inside mammal bands, especially primate and human bands, and between bands. Okay, both are important, but the difference is if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, that predator, that aggression, whack, no more carrots forever. Sticks matter more, usually for raw survival, in terms of their urgency and impact. So now we've got a brain that does four things. One, it always looks for bad news. Think about it, you know, your own daily life, scanning for bad news. Two, when it finds the bad news, it isolates down upon it with a kind of tunnel vision. Whereas on the other hand, if we find good news, we tend to keep our perspective wide open. We see the big picture. We don't take things out of context so much. And then third, uh, the brain overreacts to the bad news. For example, if you play two sounds for people that are equally loud, uh, the brain will react more to the unpleasant sound. And then last, most important for our purposes, that whole package, number four, whoop, gets fast-tracked into emotional memory. You know, once burned, twice shy. So think about a relationship. Ten things happen in a day. Nine are positive, one's negative. What's the one you think about when you're falling asleep? You know, we remember negative information more about people than positive information. Your boss gives you a performance review, right? Gives you 20 pieces of feedback. 19 are positive. One is room for improvement. What's the one you obsess about for the next year or two, right? So we've got this negativity bias. I say it's like the brain's like uh, Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. It's natural. It's designed to help us in some situations today, like in a battlefield environment, a combat situation, or growing up in a really tough condition, or being right now in a tough situation. Okay, the negativity bias can help us, but most of the time, it's like a well-intended universal learning disability because the brain is designed for peak performance in Stone Age conditions. So if you tilt toward the good news, if you look for the good facts around you and inside you, and then you help yourself have a good experience as a result, and then in particular you let that good experience sink in, if you tilt in that direction, you're just leveling the playing field. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, not dissimilar to saying, you know, where you focus your attention is where you find yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, so... You know, the, the way I look at it is I don't believe in positive thinking. I believe in realistic thinking. You want to see the whole mosaic of your life, the, the good, the bad, the neutral, and the ugly, whatever. Um, but the problem is we've got a brain that, for most people, is biased toward really focusing on the negative and overlooking um, some of the many, many good facts um, in everybody's life, even in a very difficult one. And those good facts are the basis for... Um, the naturally arising uh, positive experiences, beneficial experiences we can have in a day, like a moment of relaxation or friendliness with other people or accomplishment at work. And also these good facts are the basis for creating beneficial experiences so that we have them in our brain, you know, in the first place, because that's the basis for growing strengths inside yourself. If you want to grow positive traits, you need to start with positive states. 
the, the, as I said, you know, our experiences are changing our brain. So there's a place for uh, noticing and also creating the beneficial experiences that are the first step of changing your brain for the better because that's how to grow more determination, more resilience, more love, more self-confidence, more happiness inside yourself. In your book, you uh, say you can show us how to turn great moments into a great brain that is full of confidence, ease, comfort, self-worth, and feeling cared about. How is this accomplished? Oh, it's, it's like I'm talking about here. In other words, let's, let's just kind of bring it down to earth. So there you are in your life, whoever you are. You know, there I am in my life, right? And I'm dealing with things, and um, it's to deal with life, it's important to have resources inside myself. Things like um, various capabilities. Can I be mindful when I need to be? Can I focus my attention? Um, can I, um, am I skillful in my marriage? Am I skillful with my kids? Uh, can I help pick myself up if I've been knocked down by some hard thing in life? Am I resilient? Can I bounce back? Do I have virtues? Am I patient? Am I generous? Um, do I have uh, loving kindness for other people? You know, these are, these are the things that we want to grow inside ourselves. Is there inner peace? Is there a sense of determination? Do I have confidence? Do I feel loved? Do I feel cherished? Right? These are the good things we want to get inside ourselves. How do you get them inside yourself? Well, it's a very simple answer. You need to have experiences of these good things that get encoded in neural structure. Without the state, you can't grow the trait. But also, if you don't help this useful, beneficial, real, authentic experience sink in, if you don't help it transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage, it's merely a momentarily pleasurable uh, experience. It doesn't have any lasting value. There's no learning from it. There's no, in effect, uh, to use fancy words here, we need both activation and installation from state to trait. But without that installation, there's no learning. There's no lasting value. This is a dirty little secret uh, in psychotherapy, coaching, mindfulness training, human resources development in business, uh, character education for kids. We're good at uh, creating or activating, you know, beneficial states of mind, beneficial thoughts, feelings, body sensations, desires, inclinations, behaviors. We're good at that, relatively speaking. But we're generally lousy at learning from these useful experiences by installing them in the brain. So what my book's about very much, Hardwiring Happiness, is both getting those good states going, you know, getting that good thought going, that good feeling going, that good body sensation going, great, but especially learning how to be like a sponge for it so you really help yourself more and more, you know, take it into yourself. So actually you grow it inside yourself and you have that resource, that inner strength with you more and more as you go down the long and often hard road of life. Well, it's it's a training process, you know, and you, we can liken it to losing weight. This is a universal pursuit of most westernized cultures is that we always want to be five pounds thinner. I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. going to say mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And yet we, we, we psychologically, we mentally know what it is that we have to do, and yet we don't do it. So those of us that do do it, that actually train and practice, um, can create this installation process. The download becomes more permanent because we are practicing, we're practicing, we're practicing until it becomes a natural part of our behavior. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's sort of like um, you think about your money in the bank, right? You've got an interest rate. And, you know, let's say you're lucky and you have get 5% on your money. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, how about 6%? If you just do this little thing, you can get 6% interest on your money rather than 5%. Would you take it? I mean, everything else being this equal. Yeah, you would take it, of course, because even though that little difference between 5% and 6% interest rate, rate of return on your money, isn't going to matter that much on any given day, over a month and especially over a year, it's going to make a real difference, including in the ways that it compounds. So you could ask yourself in your just ordinary life, going to work, raising a family, dealing with things, you know, Monday through Sunday, um, what's your average growth rate per day? What's your own interest rate, as it were? What's your growth rate? What's your learning curve per day? And if you could do a little thing that would steepen your average learning curve per day, that would make all the difference in the world. So that's what I've gotten very interested in because it's real, it's authentic, and you're changing your brain from the inside out for the better. So one thing you could do is just, first of all, look for those little moments half a dozen times a day when, where if you just slow down for a dozen or two dozen seconds, you could install this useful experience in your brain. You're already, let's say, feeling a little bit of relaxation and relief. Um, maybe you're enjoying something you're doing. Maybe you look outside, and right now I'm looking at the hills, you know, um, outside my window in my home uh, that are beautiful. Maybe someone is nice to you. It feels close, feels cozy, feels loving. Maybe the cat just crawled into your lap, or you feel some soft flannel on your cheek. In those moments, half a dozen times a day, don't waste them. Stay with them a dozen or two dozen seconds out of kindness to yourself and enlightened self-interest out of wisdom so these moments sink in. That's the first thing. Second, and that only takes about five minutes a day, but it'll change your whole life if you start doing that. And I've seen that. By the way, we ran a study through the University of California at Berkeley on this course I created on taking in the good, and uh, we found very significant results that this uh, six-week course um, led to people becoming uh, more optimistic, happier, uh, kinder to others, more compassionate toward others, more grateful, as well as less anxious, anxious and depressed. So this stuff works. Second use of it is to look for the particular um, experiences that are going to be high value for you, that are going to be the basis for growing the particular strength inside that you need these days. Like, let's say... You're, I'll just make it up, you know, you're coming back from, um, you know, being in a really tough situation, maybe coming home from being at war. Uh, and maybe what's going on there is your body's keyed up, understandably, you know, you're on red alert, fight or flight activation. What would help you come to a softer landing? Well, it would be to have repeated experiences of activation of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system, the rest and digest, green zone, I call it, of relaxing, of easing, of feeling safer, of feeling protected. You know, we've got to really pet the lizard here when you're coming out of some intense, some perhaps even traumatic situation. Understood. Dr. Hansen, we are out of time. I am oh. so sorry. We, you know, we're just going to have to have you back again and explore more and more because um, this, is, this is what we do over here. We live for this stuff. To learn more about Rick Hansen and his work, visit rickhansen.net. On Twitter, he is at Dr. R. Hansen. On Facebook, Rick Hansen, Ph.D. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. 
Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on this HHTR flashback favorite. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Michelle Geelan and Rick Hansen, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Tokinet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.